Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. It's time to conclude our interview with David Renwick. Last time we heard about his early years writing for the two Ronnies and others. Now we're going to find out about his inspiration for Victor Meldrew and One Foot in the Grave as our Comedy Writing Legends series continues here on Distinct Nostalgia. Enjoy. So with One Foot in the Grave, you, this was a, a project of your own, wasn't it? By this point, you, you, you weren't working with Andrew on this. This was something you embarked on on your own had it been something that had been in your mind for quite a while it had been something bubbling bubbling under for for a while before you you know decided to um put pen to paper as it were no there was no great game plan attached to it really i mean our um <clears throat> pals had diverged a little bit andrews and mine he had written a series for um itv called sob sisters and he was so he was sort of busy working on that and I had, uh, I mean, we'd always had slightly separate careers as well as our joint careers. I mean, the two Ronnies being an example in my case. Um, so I was looking for something else to sort of fill in the time on my own, really. And I just, I, I'd spent a long time working on a, on a on a movie script, a kind of sort of fatal attraction thriller thing. I don't think it was very funny which wasn't getting very far. And in the end, I, uh, I think I thought, well, maybe I'll try something a bit shorter and hopefully a bit easier um, and have a go at a, a, a sitcom, which I'd never done on my own before. And I came back to a character that I'd created um, several years earlier when I was trying to write something for Thames Television. Um, uh, who was a, uh, a, a he was a doctor by trade um, who was rather irascible and it was a it was a characterization that I'd kind of half stolen from Neil Simon in the first place anyway from uh, uh, a character played by Walter Matthau in a in a play that became a film called The Plaza Suite um, and so I drew on that um, in my creation of Victor um but it was uh, it was really about just just seeing if i could come up with something that was kind of half funny really um putting a script together my dad had taken early retirement he was a milkman and he'd not long before that taken uh, early retirement and so that seemed to be a device that i felt i could use to my advantage um that in Victor's case, it was enforced retirement. He was kind of essentially kicked out um, a few years early from his job as a, as a security guard. Um, but that was just a hook to sort of pin it on. I mean, it was really about someone with a lot of time on their hands who was just very uh, disgruntled with life around him. And, you know, so I could kind of use it as a bit of a, a, a vehicle for my own complaints and um um, you know, moans about well, litter, in particular, was one of was one of the things he fastened on. But um, all so the, some of it was some of it was autobiographical, then, was it? <laughs> um, well, yes, I think that always, you know, that's always a, um, a a facet of writing. I think, I mean, I always said that I made never any um, sort of secret of the fact that um, Victor was really based upon my 
certainly my own attitudes, if not my own personality. But um, I always knew how Victor would behave in any given situation because um, it was, you know, how I would behave or at least how I, you know, react to anything. He has a, um, he has a, people think of him now, uh, he's, he's sort of parodied and caricatured as being, you know, this grumpy, grumpy fellow, you know, Victor, he's a bit of a grump and all the rest of it. But actually, I, I never think of him like that because I just think to myself, you know what, all these scenarios, and I know some of the scenarios go, you know, at times 10 kind of thing. But all these scenarios can happen to everybody in life, and I and I actually feel as though you know there is a sense of actually we're all we've all got an element of Victor Meldrew in us in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's that's, I think I think I think you can identify with the character whatever age you are, really. Yes, I, I think uh, I mean we've got a lot of support probably more early on from younger viewers than we did from from older ones um it was sort of written off as a wrinkly comedy in the early days as if that's all it was about and it was um um not very respectful to the older generation um when that it really wasn't about age at all i mean it was about attitude and about um as you say you know the, the way we kind of respond to the sort of insanities that are going around on all around us in life um I was always very concerned that um, however um, outrageous and seemingly incredible the, the, the plot lines I came up with were, um, that the key to making them sort of palatable was for the characters to react in a believable way. And so that's really why Victor ended up saying that all the time was because he couldn't believe it either. So he's kind of, in a way, that's preempting the audience, members of the audience who might think, well, that's a bit unlikely that that would ever happen. Well, he's the first person to acknowledge that it's unlikely and can't believe it at all. Um, you know, that there's a Citroen 2CV upended in his rubbish skip or whatever. <clears throat> but um, it's only a slight tweak on the kind of um, madness you know that that does go on around us all the time um i mean yeah that was obviously the fun of it and um a, a lot of it just i think kind of survives just because you know so long as it's funny um you kind of um worry about whether it how justified it is um after the event is my um my 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 excuse um i mean it's like you know, to take one sort of silly example there's an episode where he has a run-in with some kids who have been uh, playing cricket in front of his house while he's on holiday and his window ends up smashed um and their father uh, by <laughs> amazing contrivance paints signs for pubs for in signs so the next morning when he goes to the front door he discovers there's a sign been hung on the lamppost outside his house with a picture of himself a painting of himself and the sign the pain in the arse as if it were a you know a pub sign um and because it's such a funny image to see that 
uh, you know, that, that picture of Victor with that underneath it, and it's a huge laugh, of course. But you, know, you, you, you stop and consider this man has been up all night carefully painting this sign with Victor's face and just so he can go out there and hang it on the lamppost. I mean, it is quite a stretch, you know, to imagine it all happening. But uh, I think, you know, you get the laugh first and then, um, and then worry about the um, justification afterwards, really. Yeah, I mean, that's one scenario. I remember the other one that is similar to that is where um they're in the car um and the the tape goes on and, and somebody's obviously the yeah the car mechanics have yeah, recorded this song that's right yeah and it's that's a similar kind of thing isn't it exactly i'm sure there are many examples of that over the course of the series there was another one where there was some uh i mean it's always people he's offended yeah. um in some way who are just getting their own back there were some people who are producing a um rolls of wallpaper but just because just so that I could get in this amusing visual, visual of, uh, of the words, um, I think it was get alive, you sad git or something. But of course, it, the words were split down the, um, down the sides of the, of the, the sheet of, of wallpaper. Um, so that you, had to, you had to piece them together in your mind because it wasn't just legible you know and and the complete words weren't legible um so you had to work that out but it was just you know it's just uh, as i say another it's going for the funny images really yeah no no absolutely you were talking earlier on about um how you know comedy is not just about what's written it's about how it's delivered kind of thing let's just talk a little bit about who played who in in, in one at the grave was it always going to be richard wilson uh, well, in my mind, it always was. Um, having um, come off the back of hot metal and and you know desperately wanting to find a, a you know a vehicle for him, as well as you know I was just as I say just exploring the idea of a sitcom. But then I mean once I'd set my mind to that, it seemed such an obvious ploy to to write something with him in mind. Um, and Susan Belbin, who was the producer, who was assigned to my script by the department was also Scottish, not that it was particularly a Scottish mafia at work or anything, but she was a huge fan of Richard's anyway. So she fully endorsed my choice. And as has been much reported, he turned it down to begin with. I mean, it was partly that he'd just come off a rather gruelling um, film that he'd directed um, called Changing Step. And also he'd promised himself a holiday. He he was actually only 53 at the time. It's, it's horrifying to think now. And I'd written him as a 60-year-old retiree. Um, so for a, a multitude of reasons, he wasn't very keen uh, to begin with. But we, we persisted and we you know, eventually managed to twist his arm. And what about, um, what, what about Annette Crosby? Was she, did she sort of, uh, was she somebody you had in mind or... I mean, she's obviously Scottish no, as well. No, I didn't know. Well, again, that was, you know, just pure happenstance, really. I had no one specifically in mind at the time of writing at all um, for Margaret. Um, during the casting process that summer in 1989, I remember seeing her in a Tony Marchant drama called Take Me Home, which was, you know, fairly, playing a fairly miserable character, um, her husband, um, played by Keith Barron, I think, was kind of cheating on her. Um, and I, to this day, I can't tell you. What, I mean, obviously, I was aware of 
Annette Crosby as an actress, but she was very much, I was very much reminded of her skills and presence watching that particular drama. And because, you know, we were, we were looking for a character of that kind of age and, you know, something told me that just the fact that she was so searingly good as an actress, that she would be um, worth investigating. Um, and she did come in and um, read and um, just made it very, very funny, not by being particularly funny herself, but just by making it real. Um, and that sort of flies in the face of my, uh, well, the comment I made earlier and that I've always made over the years, which is that just playing realistically and and credibly doesn't necessarily make something funny um there are all sorts of you know great actors you know who can you know make your material real but it doesn't necessarily make you laugh That's, which is what i've always said that people are either funny or they're not funny i always kind of felt that annette's a bit of a strange exception to that rule because i mean she's not an inherently you wouldn't say she's an inherently funny character actress um but she most certainly made that character funny and the things that um she did funny just by the sheer um uh sort of force of her of that personality and of the of the i think the intensity of, that she brought to the role um made it work in a way that i've never really been able to explain um because we did see some other actresses who were, as I say, very, you know, very, very competent, very good um, uh, actors, but they didn't make you smile. And there was something about um, the, the way that uh, Annette brought Margaret to life that you know, somehow it dovetailed with what Richard was doing as well. And, that you know, that there's a chemistry that you can't define. Um, very often that just somehow brings it all to life and, and you knew that that was going to work from you know the moment they both first got together fabulous now where is it supposed to be set where are that where are they supposed to be do we you know do we well i never really wanted to be very specific about it um in the same way that i didn't want to specify their sort of social stratum at all um i mean i think it's still fairly true to say that up until that point we're talking about 1990 sitcoms of the majority of sitcoms tended really to inhabit either you know a very very visibly middle class sort of media or the or very working class there um there's very sort of upmarket or downmarket and not very much that was sort of in the middle and kind of in between which is which was the that was the uh, sort of ground that i wanted to occupy um by just not being very specific at all um and i remember richard saying what what is this character sort of he said is he sort of upper working i said yes i suppose that's probably about right but you didn't want to pin it down in any way really it was just you know it was a sort of an everyman kind of um couple um and the world was changing as well wasn't it at that point because you got yes, this sort of yeah. blend of people who were supposedly probably if you were going down the class thing were probably working class but they suddenly were living in 
in suburbia and vice versa. You know, you sort of it, it, the, things were altering around that time. So no, I, I think you're right because it, it, it and it meant really that the audience that the audience of of, of whatever class, I suppose, could identify with him then, couldn't they? Yeah, that was the hope. Certainly, I mean, I come from, as I say, a very working class background, and but I have, you know, lived through a time in which people no longer really want to be sort of classified as working class. It's not a term we use anymore, really. Um, classless and classless yes and a lot of that sort of came through with with thatcher i suppose i mean we're talking here about 89 which we just saw as towards the end of her tenure but but all of that was sort of had you know that kind of social change had taken place by then and uh, but maybe not quite penetrated the world of situation comedy uh, sufficiently um but you think of you know working class sitcoms like sort of I suppose bread and um rising damp Alf Garnet, Only Fools and Horses, Steptoe and Son, or you were you know at the other end you had butterflies and all the sort of middle class shows, the good life and that. But to actually you know create something that was sort of in the middle was still that was still a bit of a rarity. And I, what was also more interesting I think about the way that the production um developed and um, a lot of that was very much down to Susie particularly in the um the director in in the in the camera work was that we we kind of held wide shots and we let the action unfold without being too uh, sort of on the nose about the the um, camera coverage and being you know, the usual sort of ping pong shots from one close up to another close up and cut in for the punchline and all of that we tended to try and be a bit more filmic with it um, and certainly in the performances um, that, as I say, I mean, a lot of this came from Annette, but Richard's a vet obviously is a very, very, very strong, straight actor as well. Um, but just giving the performances, you know, a, a, a much more dramatic rather than comedic um, uh, strength to them, I think were, uh, helped a lot. Um, and I think if you could if you could create a world we felt that was you know seemed to have the trappings of the real world around us rather than other other situation comedy worlds, um, then we could get away with more you know take more liberties in terms of the of the gags. Um, that was the sort of principle anyway. I know I think that worked. I think that works really well and. Um... It definitely is the the realism there, and you definitely over time, you know, you you. I remember watching it at the very very beginning, and you start to, you know, you really care about the characters because of that sort of believability and uh, vulnerability, I suppose, as well is is the thing. But was it done? It was presumably it was done in front of a studio audience, though, was it? We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on it. It only takes structure. And, and you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. get them on there. Yeah. Look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go you feel me, we gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't lie. play with it. Don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. 
Yes, yes. Um, well, that was as was still very much the vogue at, at that time with filmed inserts, of course, which we did down in Dorset. Um, and there were one or two episodes, not very many, that were entirely on film, um, which we just play into a studio audience. Um, but but mostly, yes, it was done on the um, um, you know in, in the conventional way with with multi cameras. And, and um, did that? I mean, because you were just saying about how you how you filmed it and and whatever, and the fact that it's not it's not a sitcom. You know, it's a there are dark elements to it, as we know. Um, and and you know, so it's not a sitcom that's the sort of laugh a set, laugh a minute, is it? It's not gag gag gag. There's none of that. That's it. This is this is something that's been played for for real in a way. You know what I mean? And and presumably that didn't give you any problems with the studio audience. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, it, it, they took a while to to sort of warm to it. Obviously, the you know the first series was um, was a bit colder. Um, as as with anything, really, you know, you just need to make friends with the characters and to get to know them um, in order to sort of um, empathise with them, I think, and to warm to them. Um, but uh, I mean, I can remember watching, sitting down to watch the very first Forty Forty Towers episode after on the back of um, you know being a huge John Cleese fan from from Python, Frost Report, and all the other things. Um, and settling down to well, what's this going to be like? Apparently, he's playing this character who runs a hotel now. And the first few minutes, there was you know hardly a laugh in the show. And it, you know this this was seemed to be slightly disorientating to begin with. And then as the as the plot, the farcical plot, sort of um, got up steam, so uh, the comedy came into its own until I was crying with laughter you know and it was and you kind of it, it was sort of inventing a new form almost that you 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 set up the reality um so that the that the comedy would profit from that reality in a way and once you'd got everybody very comfortable with this real world of the hotel and in our case this couple living in suburbia then you you know once the you know all the madness started to invade that world um you you were you're comfortable enough with the setting to enjoy the madness i mean you know it's, it's all being very sort of philosophical about it but i uh, but those were the, the the basic parameters i think that we we we, we always tried to steer clear of things that just didn't seem very credible in terms of a you know i don't know a, an actor's performance or a or a you know, it might be a prop, it might have been a graphic. Things were always, you know, you would always aim for reality, for credibility, wherever possible. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. It went head-to-head -head with Blue Peter for the affections of kids in the 70s. It was a magazine. So you open a magazine, you have lots of different things in the magazine, and we always did four or five. And a pie is a sort of surprise, and you never know what's going to be in it. Magpie was perceived as being a little bit more risque, and at its height was pulling in 7 million viewers in its 10-to-5 after-school slot on ITV. 
Just what was Magpie's magic? Yeah, it wasn't difficult to be more hip than Blue Peter. Blue Peter was a conservative show, so there certainly was an attempt to get some of the Blue Peter audience, but it was meant to be just a bit more interesting and a bit more lively. We've brought back three of the show's presenters for a special reunion on Distinct Nostalgia. We were more like the kids, you know, because we were younger, but there was also a feeling of us being a bit more radical, just a bit more in tune with the people that, you know, watched us. We had seven million people watching twice a week. That's Douglas Ray, Mick Robertson and Susan Stranks. Back soon for a special Magpie reunion. Only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Go to distinctnostalgia.com or search wherever you get your podcasts. Are you finding that radio stations aren't quite in tune with you anymore? Try Boom Radio today on DAB, or you can find us online on your phone, laptop or smart speaker. Boom Radio, music and conversation for our generation. Boom Radio! Now, at that particular time, we're talking... um, God, we're talking 30 years ago, aren't we? It's ridiculous. We certainly are, yeah. <laughs> um, Horrifically. There were things, obviously, the world was changing. There was a lot more, you know, systems and processes and bureaucracy and, and various things were coming in. And, you know, you could see uh, Victor was, was struggling with some of those and things were annoying him. And uh, all that came through, which is fantastic. And that's why I think, actually, uh, I know you've killed him off now, but... He'd be brilliant now with all the technology. I mean, he'd have some, he could have some real scenarios of him struggling with all the technology and things. But, um, but how did you sort of, um, you know, how did you come up with those scenarios? I mean, this series lasted a long time, and I know it's character. You know, things can be character driven, and you know, things probably lead from one one thing to another. But you know, that you came up with so many different scenarios. How do you keep that going for such a long time? It was t- ten years. It was going, wasn't it? Yes, although it was it was kind of broken up. I mean, we had sort of years off, and um, towards the end of uh, its life, we'd had a I don't know maybe a year or two which hadn't made any, or we had three years where all we did was a Christmas special, and then a a year or two off, and then I came back and did another final series of six. So it wasn't like we were just you know on a treadmill of churning out you know a dozen shows every year for ten years. I think we did thirty six altogether, um, but it was about twenty five hours worth of um, of uh, material. Um, and as to how you come up with the, the you know the ideas is you know the, if I ever n- knew you know how that happened or that you know could could um you know kind of kind of sum it up in a way that uh <laughs> in a very simple fashion um my you know the, the writing process would have been a, a whole lot faster i mean every week um you know it was just um you know sort of question of agonizingly racking the brains i mean now and again something would suggest itself in you know one's own personal experience or in life that might just you know trigger a uh, a thought or two but i mean one of the one of the one of the ones that always i think everybody would think of as being one to have some great fun with and you did it was of course the the bank holiday one of them all sat in the car i mean that yeah. that, that was i mean it was, and it was brilliant because it was literally just 
well, I think you had a few little scenes outside of the car, and I think uh, didn't Mrs. Warboys get out a couple of times and things like that. And then obviously there was the thing with the car, the car next on either side. But literally, we were watching, uh, you know, a vision of three people for half an hour, weren't we? Yeah. Well, we uh, um, after the first series, I, I tried to build one of those what we call the claustrophobic episode one into each series. I mean, that was in a way that was uh, as uh, uh, a sort of a standby from my point of view because it, it because th that let me off the hook a bit in terms of coming up with the kind of density of comic ideas that I had to in um, in all the other episodes if I could just say well there'll be an episode where they're trying to get to sleep this week or they're trying to uh they're sitting there in the middle of a power cut for half an hour or they're stranded on a motorway in a traffic jam um then or there was one episode which was just um, victor on his own um just moping about the house really the, all of those episodes were just a string of jokes um somehow kind of woven together um you know I, and they didn't have the same uh, sort of there was, wasn't the same requirement for intricate plotting that I had to come up with for for the other um, shows um, so in the case of the motorway you know you start with the premise that they're stuck in a car for half an hour and then essentially the vast bulk of it is just dialogue it's just funny dialogue between him and margaret and as you say when mrs warboys gets in but in terms of the shooting of that of course it took about two weeks to shoot it um and we did it on a on a test track um just near Amptill, which is not far from me in bedfordshire um where we could um obviously the you know close the roads off because because it was all contained um and um, we set up their car with um, you know cameras all around it and no windscreen so we could shoot right through but the the the, um, the action never left the car the interior of the car as it happened apart from the very first shot and the last shot of the episodes the only time you see outside the car other than through the windows um, to give us the sense that we were always you know we were stranded inside that car along with them so when victor or mrs warboys or margaret get out of the car and walk around the other side you don't see them outside the car you just see them get out and then come back in again but what made it particularly um problematic to to shoot was um that there was all the background action going on outside the windows on either side because you know they were theoretically stuck in this traffic jam with um you know with cues either side of them in front of them and behind them so all of that had to be blocked in and choreographed very um very specifically shot by shot um looking both ways you know with all the different camera setups and with the light being inconsistent over the period of days that we shot it it just took an eternity to, to do um i remember doreen doreen mantle saying to me in the interview actually that was one of the ones she she didn't really enjoy doing that one. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think she was ill during that period for a start. I think she had some, some, uh, some malady of some kind, and um, uh, it was. Um, it, it, I mean, those things just they, they, they you know, they, they kind of have a, a place in the public's heart. But I mean, I, um, 
I remember more the fact that, um, you know, we used to rehearse that episode um, in a hotel room, just sitting on chairs in a hotel room. And we'd be, you know, and I remember going through it with the cast and, and having, getting so much enjoyment out of the things you could play around with, as you always can with comedy, you know, and you find little nuances and bits and pieces to have that you know where you can kind of draw more out more and more out of the out of the material now, of course once you get there on the on the set you know in the freezing cold on this test track and you're waiting an hour for the lights to be set up and then you know you do all of richard's lines say from the first five minute chunk and then you have to break it all down and you know look the other way and and then the whole thing is all recomposited in the editing room. The, the the natural rhythms and the and the little nuances that you you know that were there in that hotel room, very very difficult to recapture. And so that is um, you know that's 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 on the sort of negative side of of, of the equation, I think. Yeah, well, that's um, that's creativity, isn't it? You have to. People don't realise how much we go through to 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 get all this all these things no. all these things made. There was another one as well. I can remember the scenario. Were they did they go to a marriage guidance counsellors at one point or something? Where there were just two of them in a room for. It was a solicitor's waiting room. That was it. What were, What was the scenario? They were waiting, they were waiting to make to go in and uh, finalise their will. Not that ah. we ever went into that in any great detail. It was once again. It was just an excuse to have them sitting there in a very claustrophobic sort of um, uh, sort of Godot-like setting with the two of them. You know, just um, experiencing the passage of time and reflecting on this and reflecting on that. And one or two other characters came came and went in the room. Um, but uh, it was, yes, it was called Rearranging the Dust. And there was, so there was a bit of, there was a bit of sort of homespun philosophy. And he did a bit of that, didn't he? Rearranging the dust, if I remember rightly. There was, he was going around looking, yeah. looking at the dust. <laughs> yes, yes, sort of running his finger along the, along the, the uh, windowsill. And but the that. beauty of it for me, the thing I really love about One Foot in the Grave is the fact that you've got those contrasts. Obviously, it's very, he's very funny, but there are dark sides to it and there are, you know, you feel you, you, there's a lot of emotion in it. You get, you get, it can, you know, you get quite emotional for Victor and Margaret at times. There's certain things, you know, you didn't, you didn't shy away from any of that, did you, across the series, which I think is is fantastic. No, we got into trouble, um, you know, on a few occasions for just being too dark. And um, I think the first one was in the second series when we had a, um, a an elderly blind man who um, Margaret had kind of. Um, become friendly with delivering some flowers to his flat and he ended up murdered um played by jimmy jewell the late jimmy jewell as it happened um and um that didn't go down obviously it wasn't meant to be funny it was meant to be very tragic as indeed it was within the story uh, but that that was was uh, drew some complaints and even more for the episode um hearts of darkness where the um, people were being mistreated in an old people's home and Victor kind of comes to their rescue um, you know and it was meant to be a you know a kind of serious story a serious comment on the on the um, mistreatment that does occur in some of these these homes and you know gave Victor an op the opportunity to come you know to arrive as their sort of saviour um, but because it happened within a you know a show where 
yeah, hopefully there was also a lot of big laughs. Um, those two things didn't sit comfortably, you know, alongside each other in many people's uh, minds. Um, whereas, you know, I, it was never a problem for me that you can have the two things coexisting, um, as I did in Jonathan Creek. You know, you can have the drama and, and murders, proper murders, and you know, and but high comedy happening in the same show. That doesn't mean that you don't take the murders seriously, um, or that you don't, you know, enjoy the the you know the comedy for all it's worth. But um, well, there's a lot of comedy and tragedy, isn't there? At the end of the day, that's, that's yes, right. yes. And I, you know, I always trace that back to shows like Steptoe, um, where you know you have a very, very tragic moment, maybe like where he's going to put put his father Albert into the old people's home, and then it, then he doesn't at the last minute. Or um, I think the very first episode, the pilot episode, um, there's, a, there's amazing pathos in the moment where um, where Harold is trying to drag the, the the cart out into the streets through, you know, on his own as the horse died or something. I think the, I mean, it's just you know, but it really is you know. I think he was shedding real tears, Harry Corbett, in that scene. Um, and that you know, when you get stuff like that, the the comedy sort of um i think is emboldened on the back of you know a very tragic moment um and and vice versa like where we've had the big laughs in the in victor's back garden with victor picking up the flower pot to find victor's head underneath it and then the next thing is that margaret goes in and finds her mother's died gets a phone call to say her mother's died so you know on the back of those big laughs you then get the terrible tragedy definitely definitely one foot in the grave is definitely was definitely always a roller coaster of emotions that's for sure yes, yes, <laughs> tell yes, us a bit of tell us a bit about we'll talk a little bit more about some of the storylines in a minute but let's just talk about some of the the other characters because you needed them you needed a next door neighbor didn't you tell us a bit about how you how you created the uh, the next door neighbors well, everything just happened um, ad hoc in One Foot in the Grave. Really. I never set out to say, well, the, here is, this is the, the Bible, the premise for the series. We've got these two characters and this character and that character and that character. Um, the way that so many shows do, I suppose, particularly American sitcoms, you get a kind of roll call that's all set up at the beginning. I mean, they come in where they're, where they're relevant and then disappear until they're relevant again in my shows. Um, I mean, the only kind of premeditated one, I suppose, was Mrs. Warboys at the beginning, who was there in the very first episode as a neighbor, as a, as a sort of foil, um, someone, but well, the very first comic idea I ever thought of for this show when I was writing the pilot was, um, the idea of this character having the woman next door um, in a guillotine, a stage conjurer's guillotine in his sitting room and she's getting very panicky and he's banging it with a rolling pin and, you know, blade comes down and, um, you know, she's panicking because she's wondering if her head's been cut off. But that was the very first comic idea I had ever for the show. Um, so, so that's how she appeared in that episode and, uh, then became a running character, but she wasn't in every episode. Um, then when I had, um, I just had the idea of these two people turning up, um, 
on Victor's doorstep with suitcases one day and Victor has no idea who they are, but they seem to know him and the payoff is that they are actually his next door neighbours, Patrick and Pip, uh, who, you know, who they met briefly when they were moving in and had forgotten all about. Um, and having that, that episode was, you know, could have just stopped and ended there. Um, but when we put Angus Deaton and Janine Davitsky together as a couple, they, was, they clearly were so strong as a, as a, you know, couple of characters that um, I kept bringing them back. Um, and similarly with Owen Brenman's character, Nick Sweeney, who actually also appeared in the first episode, not as a neighbour, but as someone who was a, working for the um, age concern or outward bound for the elderly. And we never, saw, we, we never saw his mother, did we? No, no, that was one of those um, not entirely original idea. I suppose it's like Captain Mannering's wife, isn't it? Columbo's wife, you never see them. But uh, there was something funny about the fact that <laughs> he was always pointing up at this window as if he could see her. And Victor couldn't, of course, as if she was some sort of um, Anthony Perkins' mother kind of character. Ang um, Angus Dayton um, doesn't get talked about massively. Um, and I think he's a fantastic actor. And I think he played that part really really well and uh uh they repeated recently the, the the one where they both end up in a in a country house together in because it, it when they're yeah. stranded in the snow and whatever and uh i thought that was beautifully played really really well played this was this was them two you know the enemies stranded and had to they had to sort of um get on together and i think uh no it was, it was really good I, I just think just tell us a little bit about angus because i think he i think he's a brilliant actor and and not often talked about really to be honest well, um, Angus and Owen um, Brenman both um, worked with both of them on Alexi Sales stuff, which Andrew and I um, wrote with Alexi um, in the late 80s. So I had a working relationship with him. So w when I'd come up with that idea of the, the you know, the, 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 what turned out to be their next door neighbours who turned up with the suitcases. Um, I suggested Angus for that part and um, uh, thankfully he um, agreed to do it and was very um, much up for, you know, continuing to reprise the role uh, subsequently. Angus we had that uh, Oxbridge review um, background to his performance. So, and, you know, we'd done so much stuff in uh, the Alexi Sale sketch shows that I you know, knew, knew of his work generally anyway, but um, knew that he would be perfect for um, the kinds of acerbic lines and dialogue that I wanted to uh, give Patrick to say, to deliver. And Janine, I mean, she, somebody else who doesn't get talked about a great deal, but, you know, she's prolific, isn't she? She's done so much over the years. I mean, so yes, many characters yeah. she's played, so many. Well, I mean, it was always nice to be able to sort of play things against type. You know, it's what, so much of what I've tried to do over the years. I've always felt that, you know, you don't, you don't take a lot of credit for, for just bit, trying to be a bit different from what people are expecting you to do. I mean, it's not always that hard, but people seem very, very loath to do it a lot of the time. They will be very predictable. And even if you can just not be predictable, I think it's, you know, it's, you're halfway there to being, to doing, be doing something interesting. And Janine's roles to date had tended to be these rather gawky, 
characters, the sort of girlfriend that you didn't want, you know, to to meet. Um, so teaming her up with Angus, you know, had quite a reputation as a um, as a fanciable leading man. So to put him together with Janine um, and not apologise for the fact at all, just to have them as a happily married couple, albeit with their, you know, frictions and bickering, um, you know, was was made made it interesting instantly before you did anything else so um you know i was always quite pleased about that um, that it wasn't you know wasn't treading the usual path mrs warboys uh, obviously doreen mantle um you know i've done an interview with doreen and um but bizarrely um well not bizarrely really she's become quite an iconic character really people people you will you know you obviously people talk about victor melder and one foot in the grave but there's nobody who doesn't whenever i mention mrs warboys people instantly know what i'm talking about mm. well that's you know so much of it's down to to doreen um i mean she most certainly brought you know a whole dimension to that character which is i mean again i suppose in a way you know she's probably yet another exception to that rule that i was talking about with annette although i i do think there is something inherently funny about doreen in person in reality anyway i think she does have a um a comic quality to her um but uh, but what really made that character work was the um was the intense believability of everything she ever did and said um you know, I mean, when she comes in and with the, with the gorilla costume and, you know, that she's brought back from the dry cleaners and says she can't see any of the beetroot stains left and she can't conceive of why Victor is so outraged that, you know, why there's anything wrong with bringing back a gorilla costume. Um, and that's something that, you know, it's hard. I, I find it hard to imagine any other actress being able to do and make funny in the same way. But she says it without a hint of self-consciousness. And that's what makes it uh, work for me. Maybe the reason is, you know, we all we were saying at the beginning, we all know we all know a Victor Meldra, or we all have a bit bit of Victor in us. Maybe it's the fact that we all know a Mrs. Warboys. Really, there are quite a lot of women quite like Mrs. Warboys out there, aren't there? There may well be. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I know many of them, but um, <laughs> it was very tactless as well, of course. Well, yes. no, very well meaning, but 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 not not the greatest diplomat in the world. Um, and that was a, there was a great contrast between her and Victor, though, wasn't it? It was a really nice sort of. Uh... Yes, I mean he sort of couldn't stand her, um, but that evolved as the um, as the series went on. It was just to, just to ring the changes, really, and it got to a point where um, I think the, the sort of turning point really was that episode where she had to stay with them because her flat was flooded, um, and she was getting on Margaret's nerves more than Victor's, and Victor was kind of getting on quite well with her which made margaret even more um irritated um so by the by the time the series concluded um i think she was beginning to rattle margaret a bit as well um you know with the best of intentions but um but you see uh, here is another another interesting comedy fact really is that i could inflict all kinds of horrible ills upon mrs warboys and they would be funny in a way that they wouldn't be if you did them to margaret um and that's because the mrs warboys character is 
you know, a, a functions as a as a very effective butt of those sorts of jokes and um, physical indignities, like being trussed up in a sack and rolled down a slope by Ray Winston. Um, <laughs> whereas if that had happened to Margaret, I, you wouldn't laugh. Uh, you know, I can't really tell you why, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be funny. Um, and then the incident in the El in the Elgarve episode where she's. Uh... Where she goes upstairs and meets this guy who wants to do what was it? What was yeah, it? What was well, it? yes, exactly the same that Victor has unknowingly sold her, the man who thinks she's a prostitute. Um, and uh, those are things that are funny when they happen to Mrs. Warboys, but wouldn't be funny um, if they happened to his wife. Dory was saying that was one of her favourite episodes. She liked being in the Elgar filming that one. <laughs> yes, I think. Um, I mean, it was a long. There was another long ponderous shoot i think i i was only there for the first week of it but it did go on for quite a while in those days um money seemed to appear in more readily than it does now goodness knows budgets were tight then but um the elements conspired against us so often particularly down in dorset but also in the algarve you know where you'd imagine we might be blessed with some good weather but the first week i was there i remember it just rained continuously which put us way behind schedule as you'll imagine um but there didn't seem to be any great sense of panic you know the way there would now you know you think well goodness you know we've only got another two weeks to shoot this or whatever and, but um you know it took as long as it took and eventually it got made and um um, no, it was it was the most successful show we ever did in certainly in terms of ratings. I think we got about twenty million. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him, and I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Men, one sketch show, not enough time. What are you doing? I'm uh, I'm just recording our new promo for Distinct Comedy. What's with the voice? I, I, you know, I just wanted to make it all big and exciting, build up the tension. Build the tension for what? 
for listening. It's a sketch show, not a blockbuster film. You just need to say something like, Hey, we're the imaginary people. Listen to our sketch show on distinct comedy. You might like it, if you're into that kind of thing. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's all right, actually. Oh, well, you better be quick before the time runs out. The Imaginary People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at distinctnostalgia.com. I know you said you had breaks with, you know, the Christmas episodes and whatever, and you had, um, you know, you had a period where there wasn't many episodes. But you had to just doing a long ring series. You have to change tack a little bit, don't you? And of course, there was that episode where they. Uh, they came home from holiday to find out that the house had completely gone. I mean, that was, I mean, again, that that was fabulous. I mean, um, where did I mean, I mean, I, I, where did that come from? <laughs> well, that was the beginning of the second series. Of course, that was very early on, and it was um, again just born of a, you know, a thought about what. What hideous disaster can I inflict on them now? We left the end of you know, the first series with them going off on holiday to Greece. Um, how about they come back and find their house has exploded? Well, then I toned it down from it exploding. So I thought, well, chances are a bomb will have gone off somewhere the night of our transmission. So that wouldn't be very um, advisable. So I decided it had been um, demolished because it had... Um, caught fire because someone had stuck a firework through the letterbox and and then with all the hurricanes it became unsafe so they had to knock it down but um, uh, so that um, was the beginnings of their relocation to a different house which was the one we used for the rest of the of the series life Um, but then also in that very same episode I came out up with another idea which became a rod from my own back because I just thought it would be funny that someone else was holding the, their house warming in their, their house by mistake because they'd misread the numbers on the addresses. And when he takes them all back to his house, he's still got the wrong place because he's because all the houses look identical and he's taken them into Nick Swain's house. Um, but So that meant that we had to find a location where all the houses were identical in a row. And that was not nearly as easy as you would think i mean it turns out that this is even 30 years ago that you know people don't design houses to all look the same anymore though they ring the changes they have little differences between one block and the next and one house next to another um so it took an eternity to find this particular row of houses that were actually all identical so that victor could make that mistake and so of course that's where he ended up living for the rest of the run I liked uh, in the one where they come home and uh, and discover that the house has uh, has gone. Uh, I love the fact that he has a bit of a rant, and then all the neighbours start shouting out the windows, telling telling him to shut up. That's yeah, cool. I love all that. I love all that. Um, yeah. So, do you know? Um, do you know a, a, a Ronnie and, and and Mildred? Then, I mean, are they based on anybody? I, I, no. I, 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 I suspect I suspect you might because I know several people who were. Uh, who loves uh, showing 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 holiday pictures and things? So uh, I've quite I think there's quite a lot of Ronnie and Mildreds out there. And I do apologise in my interview with with uh, with with Dorian. I called called it Ronnie and Margaret. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ronnie, Ronnie Ronnie and Mildred. I, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but they that that is very realistic. There are people out there just like them. 
I guess that yes, I suppose I must be aware that there are types like that. But I don't say there's anyone in my personal world that um, that comes to mind. But um, I mean, they didn't yeah, I bet there's plenty. <laughs> well, they they didn't occur that often. But I just they were. I think my favourite one in Mildred joke was the well, they they weren't even around. They just referred to, but. The f when in the bedroom episode where he's um, Victor's so bored that he's considering opening one of their Christmas presents, <laughs> but then decides that he's not that bored yet, so he puts it back in the wardrobe. Um, but this is notion that they they that they've still got all their Christmas presents, which are so boring they haven't even bothered to open any of them, and they're still all stored up in the cupboard. Um, things like that amuse me. I mean, they are you know they're very very often the things that I find funniest in the shows are probably more slightly more obscure and weird than than, than the in your average viewer would find funny like there's a line in the episode where where Mrs. Warboys does stay with them uh, when her flat is flooded um, and they're watching a they've been watching this um, this uh, mystery show on TV, a crime thriller of some kind that they obviously can't fathom out. Um, and Victor just has this line, who is that Who is that dwarf in the bowler hat who kept running through the woods in slow motion? <laughs> you never did find out what that was all about. Um, it's, <laughs> it never got a laugh, it never got a laugh. But to me, you know, the, it just paints a, a visual a picture to me that is you know is slightly based on sort of thing you saw in Twin Peaks I suppose but it um, those are the images that I um, that I find really funny yeah, um, yeah. there's another one where he's trying to get to sleep and there's a party going on opposite and he looks out the window and says they're all out on the f doing Chuck Berry duck walks on the front lawn <laughs> and and again it just conjures the bit you've got to know what a Chuck Berry duck walk looks like in the first place to enjoy the image of all these elderly people doing it out on their front lawn in the middle of the night. Um, but those sort of uh, mental pictures are, I mean, there's a lot of that in, in, uh, in, in the dialogue in One Foot in the Grey, which uh, always amused me. And of course, you know, there's so, I mean, we could go on forever. There's so many memorable moments in One Foot in the Grave. You know, when he picks up the, he picks up the dog uh, for the phone, you know, he, I mean, that, it's just, there's some brilliant, brilliant lines, and and you know you had quite a lot of fun with the phone actually, didn't you? Various things with phone calls and things over the over the years, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah, so I suppose, yeah. You know, so there was some some really good stuff there. So you know, I mean, it's 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 a great series, lasted a long time, and um, obviously we we've I know that um, Richard Wilson's talked about it quite a bit about the. You know, the, the, the catchphrase, which I don't think was meant necessarily to be about a catchphrase. Um, I don't believe it, but that's sort of haunted him, hasn't it, ever since? Yes, it seems to have done. I mean, I, it's, it's always a great eye-opener to me when I first realised it, it was starting to get a lot of coverage in the press, the show, um, somewhere around the second to third series, I think, when it was starting to be picked up. And then they started mentioning this you know this phrase and only then it did it strike me that he tended to say it rather a lot but it certainly was never um something that was premeditated um you know as you know as always with me once i get a sense that something is um 
you know becoming a bit too commercial <laughs> um we'll try and rein it in a bit rather than play to the gallery too much but also it makes it seem um too artificial i think if you if you know if he's just doing it for for the sake of it so yeah 10 uh, 10 years it was going and you kept coming back for these christmas episodes and um there was always a bit of speculation as to whether it would continue or, or not um and then you decided that was it you're gonna sort of kill him off why did you decide to come to that um decision because you know i know obviously in the passage of time victor would have a aged anyway but uh you know i always think he would have like i said earlier on it would have been it would be lovely to see him coping today with all the various things that you have to cope with in in the in the 21st century why why did you decide that it was uh, it had to be the end of the day for victor yes well um there's probably an opportune moment to to mention that i have written a second one for it in the grave novel uh, <laughs> which he's uh, um which kind of draws upon material from the shows but but actually is placed in the 21st century so some of that is covered um which i'm hoping will come out this coming year um but um well i i it was not unconnected with the fact that jonathan creek was sort of getting into its stride um towards the late 1990s and so that's where my energies were mostly sort of concentrated and that's why we only did um, christmas specials for um three years in succession and then when the millennium was coming up peter salmon who was then the um the controller of bbc one invited me Very to well. write Very well. Nice guy. No, yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, he was a great, great supporter of the show, and uh, um, and was trying to encourage me to write a one foot in the millennium special, kind of Victor's views of I don't know how the last century had um, had gone and how his his hopes and fears for the next and or whatever, um, um, which didn't really appeal to me. And um, rather contrarily, I went in to see him, and instead of saying i would do that um i was more interested in doing maybe a final series of six um at the end of which i thought it was probably appropriate that he he died um so that we you know finally drew a line under the under the project altogether so i think he was so thrilled to be getting six episodes rather than the one that he thought he might ring out of me um that he said yes to that and that's so that's what we did we did a final series of six and on the understanding that i would kill him off at the end i mean really for no better reason that i felt that i you know the show had probably lasted as long as it um could have done um i mean at that stage i didn't know whether i i even got another the final six episodes in me so it was always a challenge and difficult coming up with new stuff as it you know always has been um but uh by by actually um terminating victor in the story um it kind of um it, it sort of made sure that people wouldn't keep asking if i was going to be writing any more that was that was the main um reason but also i it was i mean with the exception of say black adder where where the characters might die in a one century and come back in a in a subsequent one that had never really been a, a death of a major character in a in a long-running sitcom in this country so i felt that was a sort of a bit of a first at the time so it was something else that was original to what we were doing at that point 
and as you were saying earlier you know it just just married the themes of you know or the, uh, the 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 commodities of comedy and drama and tragedy together um and you know sort of kept faith with the with the spirit of of reality of you know um but having decided that he was going to die it, uh, i i I wasn't going to have him, you know, contract some hideous terminal illness. So I thought that would be taking it a bit too far. So it had to be, um, you know, some kind of tragic accident. What was the reaction at the time? Do you remember what the reaction was of the people, the fact that you, you killed him off? I can't remember what people said at the time. Was it, uh, I mean, obviously- Well, they knew, they knew he was going to die because we announced that in advance, not just to get cheap publicity, but because we knew that if, it appeared that we were trying to keep it under wraps as this you know great secret that would you know then be launched as a big surprise to the viewers in the show um that some newspaper somewhere would blow the thing in advance and spoil it for everybody so to head that off we decided to make it common knowledge anyway but what we didn't um want them to know was the identity of the driver that was meant to be a um, a revelation within the episode so that we still kept one surprise up our sleeve needless to say that also was blown by a newspaper um, in the week before transmission so that didn't please me <laughs> very much um, but hopefully the majority of our viewers will um, still won't have known but um, the reaction was I don't know, mixed as as ever. You got I mean, you had the reviews that said it. Well, this last series wasn't as good as the others. It should have stopped long ago. And others that, oh, why are they drawing it to a close? You know, it's the usual mixture, really. But um, I never had any regrets about the you know the decision. I thought I thought we ended it at the right point, and uh, I think Richard did as well. Yeah, I mean, looking back, I mean, obviously you went on to do. Um, you were doing Jonathan Creek towards the end of uh, One Foot in the Grave run and you've done other things since and I read somewhere about something you tried to do with Rob, Robert Webb a few years ago as well, if I remember rightly. Yes, uh, yes, it never quite came off. Could it still come off at some point in the future? Uh, no, 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 that's all. all <laughs> well, I've, I've retired from television now. Anyway, right, okay. so it's not, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But when, when you look back at uh, One Foot in the Grave, um, obviously you'd had a prolific career before that, you'd done a lot of stuff. Um, this was a big, big hit, wasn't it? I mean, did it, um, you know, I, I often ask this question, um, and it's become a bit of a cliche, really, and ask, people always ask this question, but did it change your life? Um, yes, yes, I, uh, I think it's safe to say it did, just in terms of, um, you know, my level of success in the business. Um, and, you know, I always say that I never, never been a, a cool writer, but I was hot for one brief period of time. So, um, you know, I did get um, kind of a lot of offers of work. Not that I took them, because I mean, you don't you only have time for so much in your life anyway. But it did increase my standing very considerably, and uh, it got you to. Um, you know all these wonderful BBC junkets like Wimbledon and the proms and things that um, you know I moved in in sort of more um, uh, elevated circles for a while until it all went all went uh, cold again and then I returned to life as normal which is where I am now but I mean in addition to that just on a purely um, 
uh, sort of financial basis, I mean, it, you know, it did become very profitable because they were much repeated. They were sold and the format was sold to America, a company called Carsey Werner, who made a new Cosby series out of it that bore no relation to One Foot in the Grave whatsoever. But nevertheless, um, <laughs> the deal was struck and it meant that I, you know, I made money from that, which enabled me to buy the house I'm now living in. And so all of these things have been, you know, incredibly fortunate. And, um, you know, it's... Do you think, uh, um, do you think uh, Victor, the British Victor, you know, the British One Foot in the Grave, if they'd put it on in America, do you think they'd have found it funny? Well, I mean, it was screened in America on PBS for um, a number of years, and for all I know, episodes may still be to this day. Um, it you know, would have had a, a small niche audience. You, you know, you occasionally saw reviews on you know, Amazon or places from people in America who had caught the show. Um, uh, in, in the main, they prefer to watch their own homegrown characters, of course. But um, I mean, Jonathan Creek was another example. I, you know, I was invited over to breakfast with Whoopi Goldberg, who was a huge fan of Jonathan Creek, the original Jonathan Creek, who was interested in doing it over there as an American version. Never came to anything, of course. But I mean, you know, there are there are areas of uh, American that. Principally, the out on the coast rather than in the middle America, people who like English product, they like English comedies, they like English dramas. Um, it's just I've never, but, seen, I've never, I've, there's so many, isn't there? So many formats and things that we that end up getting sold to America, and they do American version. And I don't think, and this is probably British taste, my British prejudice, I suppose, but I've never seen an American version of anything that's, <laughs> for me, has ever worked. I don't know why. But, uh, no, you know. no. I mean, I was, I was quite surprised to see, um, not that I've watched a huge number of them, but the American version of The Office is quite faithful in a way to, um, to the spirit of the, the one over here. And of course, they've done so many more than were ever done here. And that became a big, big uh, smash hit, of course. Um, and didn't, from what I saw of it, anyway, didn't really sort of, prostitute um the uh the you know the, the spirit of the first one um that's one exception i think i mean back in the 70s there was quite a lot of them whether they did steptoe and son of sam from the sun and and then and another um uh set of shows that they picked up was the um cook and mortimer shows like um uh, Man About the House, which became Three's Company, and um, George and Mildred, which became The Ropers. Um, now, I mean, those shows, um, I, I don't think I ever saw any of those, but I, have, I did, years and years ago, I did read some scripts, and they were very, very similar to the, to the ones over here. So I think just by putting American actors in those, I think, I think they probably did work. Well, that brings me to my sort of final question, really, and just a reflective one. Uh, and that is around the state of comedy today. Um, I feel that um, I love I, I love observational comedy. I'm you know observational. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of observation in, in your comedy. Um, the one that I do like at the moment on TV is Two Doors Down um, with um, Alex Norton and Elaine C. Smith and uh, the Scottish the Scottish one where all they're all they're all in and out of each other's houses in, in Glasgow. I think that's really good. Very good. Um, it's by Simon Carlyle and Gregor Sharp, I think it is. Um, and because that's very observational. But I don't see much observational comedy today. That's why I mentioned to you about having a Victor Meldrew today to have a go at the, 
you know, the world that we now live in, this technological world where everything's just a bit bonkers kind of thing. Uh, because I don't see, I don't see us laughing ourselves as much as we used to. I mean, what, how do you, I mean, what do you think about the state of, state of sitcom in particular? Well, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask, because you know, I tend not to watch any of it. But I, having said that, I'm not sure there is all that much to watch, really. I mean, I, I pay little enough attention to the schedules anymore. But I don't think that the sort of output of the sitcom, kind of sitcoms that we were talking about, um, uh, uh, exist so much today. Um, I mean, most of the comedy practitioners, for want of a better word now, tend to be stand-ups don't they? they tend to be people who've come up um as uh comedians and god knows there's simply just thousands and thousands of them now can't yeah, keep yeah, track right. anymore. Yeah. um and i guess all of that observation is there in their in their act i imagine i just don't know what you know i mean the, the amount of material that must be swilling around there out there on the in the clubs and the circuits and the stages and everything um and online is just it boggles the mind um but um, the the people therefore when the, you know when you draw your comedy shows from you know their work, I don't think are as interested in the kind of um, um, the sort of crafted narrative um, comedy that was you know was around in my day and that you know i grew up with i'm not sure that's um i mean you, you know you you quote a show that i haven't haven't seen so i'm no um ability to comment on that but yeah, but as i'd recommend it, I'd recommend it if you get yeah, yeah yeah i mean as a as a um as a form i don't see very many of them about and of course it came it came to be sort of almost frowned upon didn't they as a you know that I mean, it was only that this i mean when i say they i'm talking about the studio-based comedy i mean just the very idea of a comedy show having what was always erroneously called canned laughter even though it was live laughter but having a studio audience track on it of any kind was regarded as um uh you know a sellout um and the the emerging generations of of comedians and writers tended to feel that was a bit cheap we don't need to be told when to laugh by the cackling hyenas and the studio <laughs> audience, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you take that laughter away from shows like 40 Towers or Only Fools and Horses and they wouldn't, you know, I mean, yeah. they'd be very much the poorer for it. Um, but um, uh, so I think, you know, that just the form of comedy has, you know, moved on. It's evolved in a way that I don't necessarily embrace or recognize because um, there's, you know there's so much seems to be so much comedy out there now in the form of and in the hands of stand-up comedians um that is it's basically all what's sort of you know delivered from their mouth isn't it i, yeah, I, mean, I don't yeah. know I mean, but there seems to be this thing doesn't there whereby the the stand-up comedians you listen to them or watch any of them they're they're all pretty they can be pretty risque and near the knuckle you know they, they take it to the nth degree on in lots mm. of them uh, probably more so, you know, um, in the theatre or on, you know, and, and that kind of situation. And not so much at the moment, of course, because of the coronavirus. But um, but then when it comes to sitcom, there seems to be a tendency now to be 
to not want to take any risks at all and to be to play it safe to not sort of even some of the things that you got away with in one foot in the grave probably couldn't go away with at all now. oh absolutely yes i'm um, any any doubt that um you know that would, would be um you know would all be processed and and vetted and uh, you know for for consumption i mean the great thing about uh, our day you know was that um you know we were only two or three of us making those decisions i would deliver the script and susie would read it as the producer and i'm not even sure they went up they may have gone upstairs as a sort of a courtesy to the head of department but you know there was never any nothing ever came back down for, you know notes about what we could do and what we couldn't do or querying anything and we just got on and did it and you know that kind of freedom of expression was just glorious i mean at the time you didn't think it was it was uh, it was so exceptional because that was the way you worked in those days like python always said you know they were just given 13 shows to go away and do um, but now everything is just um subjected to so much scrutiny and you know by so many committees and executives and that um I, you know I, I wouldn't want to work under these um parameters anymore so uh, i <laughs> feel very very thankful and and blessed that i you know worked with in the industry when i did but you're giving life to victor in another medium well we'll see hopefully we'll see <laughs> how do you feel about the fact that it's still it's still popular it still stands i think the test of time people are still watching it on all the different channels that it gets repeated on um and people remember it with such affection how does how does that make you feel well it, it's it's great for you know that uh, i mean i there will be clearly whole generations of people who never saw the shows when they were originally transmitted you know given that they that finished 20 years ago so if people are you know younger people are watching it's because they've discovered it since or because their parents have introduced them to it or they've just stumbled upon it um it's all taste it's all totally just down to your own you know particular comic taste and whether it appeals to you but i like to think that there are given the amount of work i and everyone involved in the production put into it to, to you know to um sort of solidify those ideas and routines that there are you know kind of solid there's good sort of solid meaty comedy in there that does stand the test of time that one hopes won't go out of fashion david that is absolutely brilliant thank you very much indeed for talking to me that was a mammoth conversation it um, certainly was <laughs> i know we talked i know we talked a lot about the early years but i thought it was important to see to see where you come from and and uh, it was it was great to hear about um you know all the stuff you did for the two ronnies and and all those very early you know the early years where you cut your teeth kind of thing but um, oh. but thank you very much for giving us a lot of pleasure Not at all. one foot in the grave me and my partner whenever we think we need cheering up one foot in the grave is the one that we go for so <laughs> you're very kind but it's been a pleasure anyway thanks ashley david renwick speaking to ashley byrne and don't forget you can hear other interviews from our comedy writing legends series right here on distinct nostalgia we've a chat with jan etherington who wrote second thoughts and faith in the future well you can also hear a two-part interview with lawrence marks and morris gran who wrote birds of a feather the new statesman and goodnight sweetheart among others just search for the interviews on distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts there's also many more comedy interviews online, including one with Doreen Mantle, who played Mrs. Warboys in One Foot in the Grave.
distinct nostalgia. More than a podcast.